Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to Christ is the Cure, episode 144, and we are continuing the Beyond Luther series, where we talk about the Reformation, because it's Reformation Month, October, we're going to talk about everything but Luther. Of course, that's not necessarily true, because we have to talk about Luther at some ports, um, just because of Lutheran influence in Europe, and the Lutheran dynamic with, with the Reformed, and the Lutheran dynamic with the Anglicans, and everything else, right? So we have to talk about it, otherwise it wouldn't really be a Reformed um, uh, Reformation uh, Month series, uh, but the, the idea was simply this, that everyone's talking about Martin Luther, um, his nailing of the 95 Theses in Wittenberg, uh, which really, uh, at that point, justification hadn't been discussed and things like that. That was primarily about indulgences, and we could talk about that till the cows come home, but we're not going to. So this episode today is going to be skipping uh, Luther at Wittenberg and the Diet of Worms, which was 1521. Um, and the next episode will probably be on the Council of Trent. We're going to talk about the Counter-Reformation. Uh, why are we talking about the Counter-Reformation during a Reformation Month series? Well, because we need to know about it, and there's some good information that we can know about it, and there's a lot of moving parts, and I think it's good for us to be educated on that. So we'll talk about Trent. We'll talk a little bit about justification. We'll talk about some of the issues raised. Um, and then for the final episode, I'm not really sure... Where we'll go after this, I am probably not going to go to colonial um, Christianity. Uh, if I'm really honest, whenever it comes to North American and South American Christianity and church history, I kind of lose interest, and there's a lot more moving parts, so tracking it would be kind of a headache. I mean, just looking at uh, Maine in 1663, where you have the Anglican and Episcopalians uh you know, settled down there in Jamestown, and then you have the Baptists kind of scattered abroad a little bit, uh, more up there in Rhode Island type. And the Roman Catholics are uh, primarily down in South America, really. Um, but there's some over there, uh, you know, South of Maryland, or, you know, Maryland in 1634. Uh, and then you have the Presbyterians up there by New Haven. It just gets scattered. It gets hard. And there's some Congregationalists that were popped up in the Puritans get kind of interesting. In fact, up there in Plymouth, there would have been more Congregationalists um, and the dynamics that came out of the Puritans. Uh, the Quakers, of course, show up. Um, so I, I'm i not really sure if I want to go there, especially when we talk about, you know, the Dutch colonies, Swedish colonies, and everything else. I'm not, I'm not really big into that area of history. Um, and whenever it comes to North American and South American Christianity, it gets really complex really fast, and so I have a hard time with it, if I'm honest. Anyway... That was a long rant to say. Let's move on. Beyond Luther, part two. Um, sources again, Nick Needham, uh, Gonzalez, and Schaff. Classics. Um, I don't think I have uh, Philip Schaff on my book recommendations. You can get a nine-volume set uh, from christianbook.com for pretty cheap nowadays, and he's considered a classic. You can get it in software for pretty cheap, too. Some of the stuff is outdated. Um, I found most of, it, most of the outdated stuff is stuff like... Um, uh, textual understandings, but it's nine volumes. And so it's kind of hard to say, well, you know, this is the one thing that's wrong throughout the whole thing. Anyway, let's get into it. So skipping Luther, like I said, we're going to skip Luther um, at Wittenberg and the Diet of Worms, which is 1521. And we're going to focus on the Swiss Reformation for a little bit first. And we need to, uh, because it's important. Uh, Switzerland at this time uh, was part of the Holy Roman Empire, right? <clears throat> um, but they were really independent. We're not going to go into all the politics. Like I said, there's a lot there that can be discussed. You have to understand that a lot of the religious movement and politics were just so, so 
intrinsically linked that to separate them is very difficult. Uh, and we're going to try to do that here um, for the sake of my sanity. So Switzerland tended to do its own thing. Uh, its involvement in the Reformation would change its influence across Europe, though. Uh, of course, most notable is Ulrich Zwingli, who uh, he came from Zurich, and he lived between 1484 and 1531. Now, he leaned into the humanist movement. He was actually a disciple of sorts of Erasmus. He became a student of Hebrew and Greek uh, while he attended um, at the University of Basel underneath other humanists. Um, Sebastian Brandt, I mentioned him in the last episode, I believe, and he was a student underneath him. Uh, his professor, Thomas Wittenbach, is worth noting here. He was a, a proponent of Protestant ideals prior to Luther, years prior to Luther. Uh, he exalted the authority of Scripture. He, he attacked indulgences. He taught that salvation was by faith alone and the crucified Christ. Uh, and he had a major influence on Zwingli. Uh, Zwingli was actually a military man uh, and a pastor until a battle where uh, um, there was basically a slaughter of Swiss soldiers. And so he stepped away from the military life and he moved quickly into teaching. Uh, and then he was teaching that salvation is in Christ alone, not Mary, uh, nor through other mediators, such as the saints, right? Um, now, one thing worth noting about Zwingli that seems to be kind of um, overlooked is that in comparison to Luther, uh, Zwingli never reached the same popularity, um, and nor did he ever turn to, well, if we're blunt, the, the abusive and crude language of Luther. Uh, but he was just as bold in his zeal. Zwingli um, was basically the Swiss Luther at the same time as Luther. They were doing their own things at the same time. Uh, and somehow, you know, Luther gets elevated and Zwingli gets downplayed a little bit. Perhaps it's because of the Swiss separation from everyone else at first. Um, but regardless, it's important to note that. But Zwingli had this idea of doing things correctly, not forcing anything, persuasion. And so he would go into councils and discuss using reason and logic calmly. Um, well, uh, it's been said by many that Luther was a theologian of the heart. He was more passion than um, theological if that makes sense. So with that, uh, Zwingli had reached his theological conclusions independently from Luther. Uh, whenever Papists claimed that he must be a Lutheran because he had similar ideas, and Zwingli's like, no, that's, that's not true. Um, let me see. Since 1516, Zurich's Reformation was from Zwingli's faithfulness and had little to do with the movement that was occurring in Wittenberg. So in 1522, Zwingli broke with Rome, he rejected the infallibility of the papacy. He uh, rejected the infallibility of ecumenical councils and uh, tradition. And he replaced them with the Holy Spirit and scriptures. Now, because of Rome's reliance on Switzerland as mercenaries, um, Rome kind of just left them alone. <laughs> uh, that was a big difference. Uh, there was more pressure. Um, and so you, some could argue that, well, Luther was more passionate and more aggressive because Rome was more aggressive. That's certainly something to think about here, because uh, while Luther was exiled, Zwingli was fine. He, he just kept trucking along uh, because Rome needed Switzerland to battle against France. Uh, in 1523, Zwingli put forward his 67 theses for a reform of the church, uh, and he preached through the scriptures using the grammatical historical method of interpretation while neglecting uh, tradition and scholastic theology, as we talked about in the last episode. <clears throat> and 
In this thesis, he noted that salvation is only through faith in Christ. Good works were not meritorious for justification. Purgatory did not exist. The Lord's Supper was not a sacrifice. And Christ, not the Pope, was head of the church. Um, in the city of Zurich, before this council, uh, Zwingli had made tactful appeal. And so this city approved of his teachings and allowed him to preach, which also um, allowed him to instruct the clergy to preach from the Scripture alone. So that was the... That was the ripple effect. He went to the council, they approved of his teachings, they allowed him to preach, and they said that uh, clergy should preach from the scriptures alone. Neglect tradition, neglect infallibility of the papacy, neglect the fallibility of um, ecumenical councils. So in 1525, uh, Zwingli began removing all pictures, statues, crucifixes, candles, altars, relics, organs, choirs, priestly robes, and monasteries from Zurich. Um, he argued that none of them were the authorized and scriptured, and so, therefore, they're to be rejected. Now, you you find the opposite happening with Luther. Uh, they, they retained a lot of that. And so there was big distinction there when it comes to worship. And so I want to point this out. This is the distinction at first between the Reformed, that would be the Swiss Reformation. So whenever we're talking about Reformed theology, it excludes Luther. This would be the Reformed branch. Lutheranism would be its own thing. The Reformed branch from here on out will be that which came from the Swiss Reformation. Um. Let's see. <clears throat> the focal point of images was very prominent. It spread quickly throughout the Protestant world. Uh, and some of this link this um, uh, to a mindset from the 12th century, but the debate on icons and images goes back to the 8th century, so we're not, we're not going to go there. Um, so anyway, Zwingli introduced using uh, the native tongue in worship. So in, instead of having worship in Latin, which was, you know, common— he said, let's do this in our language. Uh, and he also gave the laity or the layman communion, which was also very uncommon prior to the Reformation. Uh, and this is where uh, the issues between Luther and the Swiss um, really shows itself, right? Uh, Luther and the Swiss, or the Swiss wanted to really have unity with Lutheranism against Rome. Uh, but because of communion uh, between Luther and Zwingli, uh, there's this giant blunder in church history where essentially Luther would not um, agree to disagree with Zwingli and had some words with Zwingli because of his stubbornness. Um, essentially, there was a meeting where the, the Swiss and the Lutherans agreed upon every point, but when it came to communion, uh, Luther just would not agree to disagree um, on whether or not the, the physical body was present somehow in communion while Zwingli said, no, it's, it's a spiritual. And so that you can get into that if you want to look that up. It's, it's a well-known uh, discussion, well-known blunder of the Protestant Reformation, if we're honest. And um, from there, Luther went on to say that Zwingli's works were the poison of the Prince of Hell, and that he would rather drink blood with papists than wine with Zwingli. Well, from there, you can kind of see the, the weird dynamic between the Swiss and the Reformed. Um, that'll suffice on this particular topic, but we'll move into other reformers and we're going to skip John Calvin. We're not going to talk about John Calvin. Everyone knows John Calvin. If we're going to skip Luther, we'll skip John Calvin. Um, so while the reformation moved along, the camp is denying that things got a little bit muddled. Uh, there's the radical reformers. Uh, maybe we can talk about them a different day. Um, they're, they're a diverse branch. Now, sometimes you'll see people use the term Anabaptist as like a derogatory term. The reality is that there were some really solid Anabaptists, some of them that um, put forth some brilliant ideas, but those ideas were tainted 
by the radical um, Anabaptists or the radical reformers who who got kind of nutty, um, if we're honest. And so there's always going to be those people, and they were kind of lumped into one group. Oh, those Anabaptists, they're all radicals, right? It's not necessarily so. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Radical Reformation and its influence on Zwingli in the baptism episode, um, but we'll digress. And so it gets a little bit muddled here. And th- what, what's worth noting is that at this point, uh, there seemed to be this idea that, well, the Lutherans and the Reform can't get along. And then we have these crazy Anabaptists and the Radical Reformers. So therefore, this is the judgment of God. Uh, and so what this did was this led various Protestants to go back to Rome. <laughs> Just as well, uh, Rome's persecution of the Protestants caused for hesitation as well, right? Those guys are getting persecuted. We're not going there. Um, so until 1540, the Reformation seemed to die. Um, it got really quiet for a little while. Uh, but the Reform branch by Zwingli actually blossomed in 1560s uh, and spread throughout France, Germany, Netherlands, England, Scotland. And we're going to Scotland. Okay, we're going to stick on Scotland a little bit in Eastern Europe. Uh, churches in Christian life were transforming the world, and writings were being produced. Uh, just explosion of producing writings. And we talked about uh, the printing press a little bit on the the Instagram page. The printing press was just novel. I would recommend you look into the impact of the printing press. It's a fascinating, um, movable typeset printing. It's a uh, fascinating study. Um, so some notable reformers were Martin uh, Busser, um Casper uh, Hidio, Wolfgang Capetillo, uh, Jacob Sturm, and I'm pretty sure I did not pronounce those correctly, so we'll go along and move along from there. Anyway, these individuals were educated humanists who were influenced by Erasmus and Luther and then Zwingli and theology, and uh, another one was Peter Martyr, who is considered a giant, along with Calvin and Zwingli. Um, he was a zealous reformer who was distinct for his taste for gasp Aristotle. If you remember the episode on scholastic theology, they were big on Aristotle. So basically, he was he was a weapon to be reckoned with in terms of Roman Catholicism. Um, he was trained in Aristotle's logic, philosophy, and scholastic theology. And so Rome feared this man because he would use Roman Catholic theology against itself. It was quite fascinating. It's a great uh, case study as well, if you ever want to dive more into that. So let's talk briefly about the Netherlands. Uh in the Netherlands, there was firstly a prominent movement of Lutherans, and two of the first were Europe's first martyrs, actually. Henry Vos and John uh, X, I think that's how you say that, who were burnt in 1523 for their faith. Uh, the radical reformers had a good foothold in the Netherlands as well, but eventually Geneva became a means of inspiration, and it led uh, various reformers uh, to arise, such as Guy de Bris, during 1522 and 1561. If you know your church history well enough, you know that that had a significant impact on the Dutch Reformed, but we're not going to go into that um, at this time. So whenever it comes to France, in France, there were various Calvinists, and for whatever reason, the noblemen in France really took to to Calvinism. And so by 1560s, half of French noblemen were Reformed, right? So that means that Reformed uh, congregations began to meet and worship openly, uh, they were defended by the noblemen from Rome. Uh, and then in 1561, there was actually uh, an estimate of 2,150 congregations in France, uh, which is quite amazing, really. Um, in fact, they, they would take over Catholic buildings and use them for worship. Now, one congregation notably had 10,000 members with four pastors and 27 elders. Talk about a megachurch, right? Um 
So while they had their movement, uh, eventually civil war would break out with Rome, and this would drastically affect France for 40 years. Uh, these civil wars and wars that were going on with Spain um, are said to have nearly destroyed France altogether. And during this time, there there were various massacres. Um, the massacre of St. Uh, Bartholomew's uh, day was 20,000 French Calvinists were put to death across France. Um, from here, things would worsen and, and more war and tension until basically 1598. So that's a pretty good chunk of time. Um, so Scandinavian. It's hard to discuss Scandinavian because we're talking, you know, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Iceland. Um, so we're not going to get to all of them. We'll briefly look at some of them here. Um, they basically became Christian in the 11th century, and they found themselves reforming to Protestantism uh, in the 16th century. They abandoned the papacy. Uh, Hans Tausen lived from 1494 and 1561, and he was known as the Danish Luther. He was heavily influenced by Luther's uh, writings, and in 1524, he spread Lutheranism across uh, Viborg uh, when he was arrested. Now, despite being arrested, he became a close friend of King Frederick and became a royal chaplain in which uh, basically he found Protestant theological colleges. Uh, Frederick broke Denmark's ties to Rome in 1527, specifically uh, in the Pope's right to establish bishops in Denmark, right? So that was a big thing. Uh, additionally, taxes would go to the Danish monarch, not the papacy, and the New Testament appeared in Danish in 1529 thanks to a Lutheran named uh, Christian Pedersen. Uh, Lutheranism would eventually spread to Norway, and Iceland became a little bit more com complicated, really. And that Lutheranism kind of reigned in, in the southern Providence, while Rome still reigned in the northern. And we see this kind of tension um, throughout various uh, locations. Um, but it was much blood, much many politics, and Lutheranism eventually would spread throughout all of Iceland. And the rest of Scandinavian countries uh, could be addressed as well, but we'll just move on a little bit from here. Uh, England and Scotland... Ah, man, Eng England gets complicated really fast. You know, for such a small uh, country, it, it gets it gets pretty intense. Uh, so to trace and go through all the history uh, would be really difficult. Uh, again, lots of moving parts. Now, various humanists in England were attracted to Luther and his movement. Uh, and there was a group of humanists who uh, were from Cambridge, and they would meet in the White Horse Inn to discuss various ideas posed by Luther. Uh, some of them were Robert Barnes, Thomas Kramer, Hugh Latimer, Thomas Bliney, and they would eventually be burnt at the stakes as martyrs. Uh, so there's plenty of martyrs during the Reformation period, and these uh, great men who uh, met at the White Horse Inn had a major influence at Cambridge, uh, and they suffered for it. Uh, the movement in England was fueled by Erasmus's Greek New Testament, in which justification by faith in the Pauline corpus really just rocked um, England. Uh, justification really rocked the Reformation. Now, everyone knows this one's name, uh, William Tyndale, who lived from 1495 to 1536. He was a priest and a linguist. He focused heavily on the task of translating the Bible into English from the Greek and Hebrew. Uh, he was opposed by the English church authorities. Eventually, he was exiled and lived in Germany and, in ne and the Netherlands. Um, and his New Testament would be published in 1525. Uh, and the editions were smuggled into England. And he worked from Erasmus's Greek, the Latin Vulgate, and Luther's German edition. And this would basically form the basis of the English New Testament until the 20th century. Uh, even that of the King James Version utilized it. 
the English condemned his works because he translated various phrases contra traditional understanding from the Latin. Uh, for example, do penance instead of repentance. The church in his uh, translation was congregation and priest was now a senior or elder. Uh, he managed to translate a fraction of the Old Testament before his death, but Tyndale also had a variety of theological works. Um, so he didn't get to complete that before he was uh, betrayed by a spy, strangled, and then burnt at the stake near Brussels in October of 1536. Um, so England had mass amounts of political reformation, lots of politics in England, um, as well as between uh, Roman and Protestant monarchs. You see these tensions of, uh, well, now we have a Catholic monarch, and now we have a Protestant monarch. What are we going to do? Uh, and so... Uh, you see names like Bloody Mary uh, and Henry. They're they're very familiar, and you can certainly go read more about them. I highly recommend you read more on Bloody Mary. So that's your impact on the Geneva Bible uh, in Geneva. And you'll find that Geneva ended up being kind of like a uh, place of solitude for many people escaping uh, persecution. So anyway, uh, at this point, uh, Miles Coverdale is worth mentioning as well, following Tyndale, and that he finished Tyndale's work and published the first complete English Bible. Uh, in fact, um, this widespread of Bibles dramatically increased the layman's Bible reading, uh, where those who couldn't read learned to read so that they could read and study the scriptures. Um, Edward Fox, a bishop, said, Make not yourselves the laughingstock of the world. Light is sprung up and is scattered throughout all the clouds. The lay people know the scriptures better than any of us, talking to his fellow bishops. It's a great quote. Uh, in 1547, Protestantism in Southern England was established, but it was neither Reformed nor Lutheran. Uh, it is what we would call Anglicanism or the Church of England. It was its own unique flavor. It was biblical, uh, had an emphasis on personal godliness, but it was also mixed with English nationalism, which is interesting. A view to England as kind of God's chosen nation as the forefront of his purposes in history while they battled with the Roman Antichrist. And if you think that's a surprising tone, it's not. At that time, Rome was seen as the Antichrist to probably most of the Protestant world. Um, so anyway, this would become known as Anglicanism. Uh, and England, again, went back and forth between uh, Protestant and Catholic leadership. So a little bit of Scotland, uh, which is going to have a little bit more than the other ones because I'm biased. We'll focus on uh, Scotland, and then we'll talk a little bit about the Campbells because, well... Bias. So, um, Protestantism landed and well began to land in Scotland in 1520 through merchants who brought over Lutheran books in Tyndale's New Testament uh, through Edinburgh and St. Andrews. It'd be five years later when Parliament would prohibit Lutheran works. Um, as one would expect during this period, there was a lot of political moves. Again, as monarchs led to various tensions in nations. Uh, and it determined a particular direction one nation would take. So that aside, we'll just look at some Scottish Protestants because it gets kind of exhausting going back and forth between some of the politics. You should read about them. It's fascinating, but we're not doing that here because I think we're already about 30 minutes into this episode. Uh, Patrick Hamilton, 1504 to 1528, was one of the earliest Protestant preachers in Scotland. He was arrested in 1528 for preaching Lutheranism, and he was tried, convicted, and condemned for heresy uh, with the consequences being burned at the stake um, at 24 years old. Just sit on that for a second. Actually, if you consider the age of a lot of these individuals, it's pretty sobering. Um, anyway, his martyrdom would basically echo throughout Scotland, uh, and it would drastically impact individuals such as John Knox. 
Um, and in 1542, uh, various Protestant advocates entered into the power of Scotland, which led to the reading of the Bible in English. Um, it, it led to it being permissible. Um, so we basically see this boom in laymen pouring into the scriptures. Uh, George Wishart, uh, 1513 to 1546, is noted as the second greatest Scottish reformer who taught New Testament Greek and preached in front of large crowds in East London, where he met John Knox, a priest who would actually act as his bodyguard, along with some others. Um, he was kind of an itinerary preacher. He drew big, he drew big crowds. Um, Wishart was more reformed uh, than Lutheran. In fact, at this point, Lutheranism actually, was actually dying down in Scotland significantly, and so the spread was of the Reformed persuasion. In fact, um, Wishart would actually translate uh, the English Swiss Confession uh, that was originally from Zwingli and Calvin. In 1546, power shifted and Wishart was arrested and tried for heresy. Again, we had another monarch who was against Protestantism who showed up, and he was used as an example, essentially. The funny thing about this was that he was used as an example, but actually backfired. Uh, he showed up on trial in a stadium, essentially, and he preached. He appealed to the scriptures, and he embarrassed those who had put him on trial, and so they called the trial off. <laughs> so they called the trial off, they sent everyone home, and then later on, he was burnt at the stake, uh, which was actually a motivator for the for the Protestants. It, he was again one of those where martyrdom ends up fueling the fire more. It's 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 just a fascinating thing to think about. Uh, this leads us to John Knox, who would pick up the torch as the great Scott reformer. Right? Uh, there's actually a, a documentary on Amazon Prime about John Knox, which is very fantastic. Um, the, I think you can get. I think you can rent it for four bucks or you can watch it for free on Amazon Prime. It's worth watching. Um, anyway, uh, Knox was a disciple of sorts of Wishart, uh, though after uh, Wishart was killed, Knox was actually captured on a French galley and he was a slave for 19 months and it was run by Roman Catholics. His captors would actually try to convert um, the Protestants aboard, um, but this ended abruptly whenever... <laughs> Whenever John Knox threw the image of Mary over, overboard, whenever they tried to make him uh, pray to the image. So uh, Knox gained his freedom. He moved into England where he became a pastor of an Anglican parish. And then he was appointed a chaplain to King Edward. Now, Knox continued to be uh, bold and outspoken, especially in regards to kneeling for communion. That was a big thing. Uh, so much so that they had to express in what was it called? The Black Book of Prayer that kneeling was not worship, and Knox was like, I'm not going to kneel, I'm not going to worship, I'm not going to worship the elements. Um, and that actually ended up being a big uh, big point of contention. Anyway, eventually Knox ended up in Geneva when he fled the Roman Catholic uh, Queen Mary Tudor. Uh, you may recognize her name, and that was in 1553. And Knox in Geneva produced a number of works. Uh, he formed uh, a liturgy, which would withstand the test of time and English Puritans would uh, even use it. Um, and some of his works really made things difficult though. Uh, we have to be honest about some of that stuff. Um, he was very outspoken against females in government, which was very awkward for Queens um, who were predominant in England. So especially Queen Elizabeth. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that caused a lot of tensions. In fact, many of the Protestants, um, of Knox's times found his work on the subject to be extreme and outrageous. Interesting that Calvin had uh, those works uh, banned in Geneva. <laughs> and I think you can read those for free online. I can't, I can't remember what they're called right now. 
I'm sure if you look up John Knox's works on uh, feminism or something like that, uh, they'll pop up. Um, so that was an interesting dynamic that that occurred. Needless to say, John Knox's first attempt at politics did not go well. Um, his second attempt at politics was a work that pushed Scottish government to move the Reformation forward. Um, Knox would eventually return to Scotland from Geneva, where more politics became at play. Um especially in the establishment of a reformed parliament, where eventually in 1560, this parliament would approve of the Scots Confession, which was a reformed confession for the nation. Uh, parliament would fight against Lutheran ideology, uh, which is an interesting dynamic, as well as outlawing Roman Catholic mass. Now, later, Knox would be known for his relationship with Queen Mary of Scots, who was a Roman Catholic, and who was confronted by the both Protestant, um, uh, quite a few... Quite a few moments. In fact, uh, there's one account of where John Knox brought the Queen to tears. Uh, fascinating to read up on that. Uh, but we're going to end on this note. So we're going to talk about um, the Scottish Highlands. Now, within Scotland, uh, the most prominent movement in support for Protestantism was um, that of the Earls of Argyll. Uh, the Campbells, Clan Campbell. Outside of the Campbells territory, in many of the Highlands, uh, Protestantism really was fairly slow. Uh, most of the highlands would actually remain Roman Catholic with various forms of Celtic paganism, uh, and, which is a very interesting thing to look into as well. It's very bizarre. Uh, the Campbells were actually linked to the Lollards, uh, who were the followers of Wycliffe. And really, the Campbells were advocates for Protestant uh, ideology early on. Uh, some were put on trial in 1494 to really get a perspective of how much they had uh, been in that boat. So additionally, the Campbells were involved in the early efforts uh, and supported Wishart's preaching campaign in the 30s uh, and 40s as the Campbells worked to organize and sustain Protestant causes. I think that's just awesome. Uh, the Campbells also supported John Knox's preaching, and they also attempted to convince Knox to remain in Scotland uh, in 1556 with the promise of the Campbell clan's protection. Fascinating stuff. I loved reading about that. I enjoyed it. Um, again, there's a lot more there that we can't get into. So, by 1560, um, if we look, if we kind of survey everything, we have Ireland being predominantly Catholic with Dublin having a small Anglican influence. Then we go over to uh, England and we have Wales being predominantly uh, Anglican. And then you have Calvinism influence over there and from London up type uh, up to Scotland. Then you have predominantly Calvinist Reformed um, until you get up into the Highlands, where it's mostly Catholic. But Edinburgh essentially was all Calvinist. Whenever you get it down to, to France, you have predominantly Catholic with shades of Calvinist influence in various areas, and uh, um, especially whenever you get to the border of the, the Roman Empire um, and you move over to, into Basel. Now, the Swiss Confederation, obviously, with Geneva, was Calvinist. Um, and then as you go north of the Swiss Confederation into what would be Germany, you have um, more Lutheran, obviously, and then you have Lutheran influenced with uh, Catholic behind it. The Spanish Netherlands uh, would be, uh, it's kind of weird. There's a lot of Anabaptist going on there, and then there you have uh, Calvinist influence as well. But as you go north from uh into Denmark, into Sweden, into Norway, it's basically all Lutheran. Um, some would argue that there's um, other dynamics there, but predominantly it would be Lutheran. 
uh, going back to Spain, I can't remember if I mentioned Spain. Spain was all Catholic, um, essentially. So you have um, Sp- Spanish, you actually have the rise of the Jesuits. And we'll get into them later on. Um, as you go down to, into Italy as well, it's all remains Catholic, um, which if you think about locationally, it'd be really hard to push reformed um, or reform in general there. Um, as you go um, east of the Roman um, Empire, you have Austria having various influence between Calvinists and Lutherans. It's all mixed. And then as you go up to uh, Prussia and Courland and, um, you know, north of Warsaw and Poland, you have predominantly Lutheran influence again. Um, at this time, south of Austria, uh, you know, south of Hungary, you have the Ottoman Empire, um, which is another dynamic that was um, fascinating to kind of look into. Of course, you have predominantly Muslim ideology coming in from the south there. So that would be 1560-ish. And then 1545 is when the Council of Trent would begin to pop up. So we're looking at 1517 to 1545, but the Council of Trent met in a couple of sessions. Um, They met in three main sessions, 1545 to 1547, 1551 to 1552, and then 1562 to 1563. So we'll get into that next time. We'll talk about the Counter-Reformation, and maybe we'll include, we're going to talk about the Evangelical Catholics, which probably made you say what? Um, And that's it. Anyway, God bless you all. I hope this was uh, organized enough. I hope it help you gain a little bit more perspective about what was happening around the Reformation. And that'll be it. Hope you guys have a great, great weekend, and God bless you all.